Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up DTC pod? Today we're joined by Horace Memon, who is the founder of Miracle Brand and Nameless. So Harris, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the brands you're working on and your just general involvement in the space? Yeah, for sure. Um, so about five years ago, my business partners and I started a holding company called Nameless Ventures. The goal was pretty much we're going to incubate a number of direct-to-consumer brands and at the platform level, at the hold co level, form relationships um, for distribution opportunities. So, uh, you know, media companies and publishers, affiliates, retailers, things like that. Our theory was pretty much, you know, distribution was going to be the main differentiator for D2C brands. This was back in 2017, 2018, when we were first kicking the idea around. Um, and so we built the platform with that thesis in mind. We raised capital to build out a couple of brands. What actually ended up happening was our first brand is called Miracle. It's uh, functional home goods. So think of, uh, you know, bedding and bath products and kitchen products. Think of the, the parachutes and Brooklyn's of the world. Um, we built product lines similar to those brands, but with functional fabrics. Um, that brand ended up taking off uh, a lot more quickly and with much larger scale than we expected. Um, our second year of business, we had eight figures of revenue and close to 25x growth. So we decided to just double down there and focus primarily on scaling that business out instead of you know, spreading ourselves across five different brands, finding product market fit into to other categories and opportunities. Um, so for the next couple of years, we, we put most of our capital and team resources into that brand. Um, so that brand today is quite large. Um, you know, we, this year we'll do close to 30 million in, in revenue. We're a profitable business. We've got a full team in place operating the day to day, day to day of the company. Um, we own a hundred percent of that venture at Nameless. And then, um, we have another business, which is Seedwell. It's a plant-based vitamins. Uh, so think of sort of a line of supplements across gut health, sleep, um, uh, stress, uh, different sort of product lines all centered around sort of plant-based remedies. Um, that brand has been growing quite well recently as well. Um, but admittedly, it's it's still sort of early growth stage uh, compared to sort of Miracle. Uh, so yeah, that that's kind of the core business at Nameless. And then, you know, and we've kind of structured it as we haven't raised a lot of capital or a lot of growth capital. It's mostly just been uh, a couple rounds of capital, primarily from highly strategic individuals. So founders of much larger media, commerce and entertainment businesses. Uh, and then outside of Nameless, I've been pretty involved as as kind of an investor advisor to a number of different brands uh, across like food and beverage, health and wellness, uh, just kind of other brands operating in a similar kind of retail and commerce territory. Uh, so yeah. How did, what's your background? How'd you start it? How'd you start getting involved yeah. in this landscape in the first place? Uh, so I, um, before Nameless, I ran an agency. It's a, I feel like it's a pretty common story for a lot of CPG founders today. Uh, I ran a, a growth marketing agency, uh, 
five, six years back. Uh, and pretty much initially a, a lot of my, a lot of my team uh, was operating sort of within tech. So I, I, we were basically handling all the growth and performance marketing for a lot of major tech companies. Like for example, like Lime Scooters, um, from series A onwards, uh, for a while, my team was running all of their growth. Um, we were advising their in-house team as well. It was a lot of sort of traditional consumer tech as time passed. I ended up getting a lot more interested in, in e-commerce. And so what happened was I started signing, sorry, if you hear a, cry, a screaming baby in the background, um, I think he's, uh, he's in the living room over there. But um, so from there, I, I started signing on a lot of retail and, and commerce brands. And I ended up realizing that that was where I wanted to focus as an agency at the time because E-commerce was a category where I think the clients understood that the value was in the distribution of the marketing. Um, and they understood that a lot more than tech, right? Because in tech, at the time, at least, it was much more about product and engineering. Um, so the client relationships were a lot easier to handle on commerce. They understood the value and they sort of very much just trusted the decisions at hand. And honestly, it was just very fun to work with consumer brands. So... Um, ended up shifting a lot more of the client base there. As time passed, I was like, you know what? If, if I feel that uh, 70 to 80% of the value here is the actual growth uh, uh, and, and marketing operations, then why service the brands? Why not build them? Um, so around that same time, my two co-founders, uh, Victor and Ahad, were guys that I was collaborating with on different things. So Victor, for example, at the time was running a pretty top uh, brand and design agency. He had a lot of CPG and e-commerce clients as well. Um, and Ahad was kind of doing his own thing in like manufacturing, retail, and importing. So each of us uh, were thinking about building brands. And I was sort of getting to know Victor at the time. We were sharing clients and collaborating on the agency side. He was the global head of design for Lime Scooters at the time through through the agency he founded. So we were collaborating there. Um, so yeah, so at the time, we you know all three of us were like, all right, you know, this is this is the time to go after it. Why are we servicing brands? Why don't we build them instead? We had all the three key functions. We had uh, design and brand leadership, manufacturing and retail leadership, and then marketing leadership. So, yeah, that that was around like late 2017. We were kicking the tires around mid 2018 is when we kind of more formally kicked it off. Uh, and then first brand was launched January 2019 more formally. Um, so yeah. You know, one thing that you mentioned that I think is true is the fact that you when you compare tech with, say, consumer products or physical products is that the alignment of what you're selling versus what they actually get um, is there versus tech. Like it can be so different, especially in early stage companies, which like you see these memes of, you know, what the pitch deck looks like and then what the product yeah. actually looks like. And so that that creates that, that makes it very hard to not only create sales, but then, you know, obviously also have retention. How did you see how did you see like as if you if somebody were to start a brand today um in the e-commerce space you know given that we've seen here at DTC pod a lot of brands very successful have started by people that had an agency would you recommend someone to work at one of these companies before work at an agency like what is the difference in experience of being in an agency versus having worked in just one DDC brand? Uh, honestly, I, I wouldn't say you you have to have agency experience. I, I think it, all that matters is you have very core skill sets that are needed in DTC. 
the way I kind of look at D2C um, is it's just very much about hard skills for the most part, right? You, you, your skills on the performance marketing side, the creative development side, the product development user experience side, these are all sort of more hard skills. And what I mean by that is, I mean, look, look, look at how a lot of D2C brands are structured. A lot of them have individual freelancers and agencies tackling each core function because it's all about highly skilled specialists. So uh, I wouldn't say you have to have agency experience to go start a brand. I mean, for us, we just happened to be that way because we were like running agencies at the time. I was running a marketing agency. Victor was running a design agency. So it, it gave us all the exposure as we saw all the different frameworks, price points, brands, categories that we worked with. Um, but you can get you know that expertise elsewhere as well, right? So like, for example... If you worked in, you know, uh, performance marketing and growth at a consumer tech company or, you know, uh, at another DUC brand or retail brand, you can get the same level of sort of exposure. Um, I think the benefit, though, I will say of having uh, ran an agency before starting a brand is you end up getting a breadth of exposure into the real challenges and frameworks that all brands face. And it makes you realize uh, what's important. Because then if you're seeing the same, you know, successes and same losses across brands in different categories, price points, levels of scale, you end up realizing, well, well here's where the value is derived from, right? So you have a better understanding of, of just what it takes to win in the space. If you've serviced 20 brands at a time or 10 brands at a time, and you've seen all the similar challenges. Um, so that definitely was a big plus. The other thing was because we ran agencies, uh, it was a lot easier for us to manage agencies and freelancers than other brands. Um, we, we understood how agencies operate. We understand incentives for agencies. So when we started, when we switched to, to owning our own brands and starting our holding company, um, we knew how to manage agencies. You know, you kind of have to be up their ass a little bit uh, sometimes, right? And, and at the same time, it's, it's uh, you know, you have to understand how to assess them and how to vet them. Because look, agencies yeah. are good bullshitters. And it's not that they intend to bullshit. It's just the reality is an agency's incentive is to uh, give you sort of uh, maximum value relative to minimal effort and time. That's just the reality, right? If you have 30 clients, you have to prioritize what's working. You're always trying to onboard new clients. And it's just the nature of the game. It doesn't mean you intend to do that. But it does mean that when you own a brand, you have to understand how you're going to manage those agencies, how to vet the right agencies. And then also just in general, you know, uh, having ran agencies, we had a pool of talent on the freelance side that we already really trusted and worked with. I had my go-to guys on growth and marketing. Victor had his go-to guys on design. Um, and, and so, yeah, I would say what really matters is just having deep expertise in one of the two or three core skill sets needed to succeed in D2C, whether you're a marketer, a designer, or a manufacturer. So like, for example, Ahad, uh, our third co-founder, he, uh, you know, he's done tens of millions, high tens of millions in revenue in retail over the years, importing and distributing products to big box retail. So he's manufactured goods around the world, right? So for him, he also understood how we were going to source our product with the specs that we had in various markets at any given time we needed across all SKUs. So yeah, basically just echoing my point that really what matters is just whatever core skill sets are needed in D2C, which I classify as like those three categories, just have that experience. It doesn't mean it has to be in an agency, but yes, there are definitely benefits to having done it at the agency level. When you guys ran your agency, were you focusing a specific revenue range with the clients that you guys worked with? It was honestly pretty variable. I mean, I, I'll, I'll speak for myself because Victor's agency was a different agency. His was design. My agency, um, 
we had a pretty broad mix. Uh, I had anywhere from like pre-launch startups to global brands. Um, some of my clients had raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Some of them had just raised a pre-seed round recently, right? Um, and some were bootstrapped. So like even on the e-commerce side, um, you know, so I, in between, kind of sort of in between uh, the eight, like running my agency versus starting the holding company of brands, I did a couple of sort of interim CMO slash fractional CMO roles. And that was kind of like, uh, you know, for, for larger consumer brands, like an apparel brand that had done uh, 100 million plus of lifetime revenue, an audio brand sold in Apple stores. It was like some of those later stage brands. Um, but at the agency level, there was a mix of those at the earlier stage as well, because we were sort of helping brands get from traction, post-product market fit to scaling. Um, and so the reason I kind of gave those examples was like, I've, I've been involved pretty in depth at the sort of like overseeing the entire function level for different brands prior to starting my own across all scales and sizes. Um, and so, yeah. The, the reason I asked that is because the core skill sets needed uh, to probably, you know, take a brand from zero to five million and then from five to 10. And some agencies might, you know, have the expertise for a specific revenue range. So how do you sniff out? Because if, if I'm trying to onboard an agency, for example, and I'm vetting them out and I'm like, all right, guys, I know you can take me to five million, but you know, should I be aware here that I might be start needing to look for another one once we cross five, once we cross 10? How do you sniff that out from an agency? I have, so, so that's a great question because I want to then redirect that to the, the most important part of, of the discussion of D2C, which is I think everyone places way too much uh, responsibility and accountability to their agencies, way too much. And the reality is our agency is not going to be the one to get you from zero to five, nor the one that gets you from five to 25. It's got to be you and the agencies are just supporting partners to that. And I don't, I don't mean that in a cliche way of like, oh, don't rely on your external parties. What I mean is D2C is not easy and it's way harder now than it was five years ago. And five, six years ago, yeah, I'm not going to lie. You can have your agency be the one taking you from zero to five and five to 25. And, and, and the reality is you could place most of the responsibility on them. Why? Because, well, growth was way simpler back then. Profitability was a lot easier. Uh, media buying at scale was a lot easier profitably. So because of that, most of the value was just derived from really good media buying. Today, that's not even close to the case. In terms of building out your funnels, optimizing your funnels, leading your creative process, experimentation, everything, the reality is... Um, it's not your agency is just not going to be the one building out your funnels, your upsells, your advertorials, your creatives. That's just not what they're here for. So the challenge that a lot of brands are facing today is they're hitting a wall at between five to 10 million bucks. I'm seeing this all the time. And the reason is because they're, they've relied on their agencies. They have some decent creatives uh, built out internally and their agencies have continued media buying. They don't know how to break through the ceiling. And a lot of them think it's the agency's fault. So they fire the agency, they hire another one, they have the same problem. And the reality is it's because those teams aren't taking the growth function in-house and thinking through all of their experimentation, their landing pages, their funnels, their upsells, their creatives, their advertorials. They're not really doing a lot of the uh, experimentation themselves. So what's happening is like the agencies don't have much to work with. But look, the agency is never going to complain to you that, hey, you're not giving me more stuff. You're not giving me funnels and creatives that are going to work. The agency is going to keep doing its job, focus on their 20 other clients that they have, 
And it's your job to continue pumping out each of these and working with your agency every day to say, hey, here's what we need to test next. Here's what we need to test next. Here's what we need to do next. Like for us, you know, at Miracle, the amount of experimentation going on on a week-to-week basis is insane relative to most brands. We have 3,000 video ads in our library. We have probably thousands of landing page experiments and tweaks we've done over the years. We have different funnels, landing pages, upsell systems, advertorials, everything. And we feed that to each of the sort of agencies and traffic partners and contractors involved, right? Um, so that that's kind of where I wanted to, to direct your question yeah. and also to, to, to jump in on, on the specific question itself of like, how do you vet what agencies have experience at each level of scale um, is, you know, it's kind of the founder's job to really realize how they're going to hit each ceiling. Uh, and I, And the reason I say that is like, I don't really think that there's a big difference uh, between the agency that can do zero to five versus five to 20 million. Sure. To some extent there is like, look, there's agencies that in general have not spent $50,000 a day of ads. So they don't know how to maybe spend at that level of scale efficiently compared to those that just spend at maybe five grand a day typically. Um, but media buying today is, is a lot easier than it was years ago in terms of the actual work for the media buyer. Cause right now Facebook is really like, if we're going to talk about like Facebook and TikTok, for example, specifically, it's really about your creatives and your landing page. The actual media buying and traffic in between, yes, there's still an art to it and a science to it, but it's much less than five years ago. And instead, like 80% of the value is on your creatives and your landing page. Um, it's so, so shocking to me, though, that most br- most brands settle with just a few pieces of content, not yeah. enough content. It's crazy. Um, and, and I mean, we sell content at Trend and yeah. we try to tell them, like, you need to 10x the volume it's not just quality it's quality and volume and um you know they have one that hits that really works and they just saturate that out and then they wait until (laughs) that one doesn't perform to then produce more content yeah and and that's the problem and like i always tell people i'm like look media buying and performance marketing still works today right it's it's always going to work the problem is you just have a lot of inefficiencies uh, that are there in between. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of brands, like you mentioned, who have a creative that crushes until it dies. And then they start thinking about the next creative that's going to work. Well, now you have a few weeks of that creative crashing and burning, no new creatives working. And it might take you two rounds of creative tests to find a creative that works again. So now you just have four to six weeks of terrible performance, right? While you were already declining for a couple of weeks. So it's, you know, the reality is like the extent to which you're able to experiment more to find the winners. If two out of every 10 creatives is going to be a big winner, you've got to be very efficient on how quickly you're going to kill the eight that don't work and how quickly to get that data. And then how quickly you're going to keep pumping those two hypothetical sort of winning creatives. And that's the problem is if you're not really doing that efficiently, that's thousands of dollars of wasted spend. And now that's why your ROAS or your CPA figures are off. That's a big problem, man, that a lot of brands are, are facing for sure. What are some, uh, do you guys also produce organic content or is it just paid marketing type of content that you produce? Um, because you have 3,000 assets, so you have a lot yeah. that you could just repurpose yeah. across the board. I would say our, from a content perspective, it's definitely all for performance for the most part. I mean, we have we're very distributed in terms of where our revenue comes from. Like Facebook is not the majority of our revenue, Facebook is the minority, right? We get like a third of our revenue from Facebook. Um, so we're pretty distributed uh, at scale. 
Um, but in terms of content, yeah, I, I, just to be honest, it's definitely mostly just all performance based content. Curious, we don't really do a lot of organic. Why? Why is it just a third? Is that intentionally? Is that given to depending on the market for a specific brand? How, how, yeah. how do you guys look at that? Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, two to three years ago, it was probably eighty percent Facebook. Um, these days, it's a third because. Um, Facebook for us and everyone in the world was definitely easier three years ago. And I don't mean that just because of iOS 14 and, and everything going on in the world, just in general, like traffic networks are always going to get more expensive as time passes. CPMs are always going to rise. Inventory is decreasing and demand is increasing. So at the end of the day, the advertiser and the ad inventory available is always going to get more expensive year over year. Um, and yes, obviously a lot of those other factors like iOS 14, so for us, we saw that, I mean, two years ago, like I, I don't saw that two years ago, meaning for our brand, we saw that there was going to be a risk uh, of having 80, 90% of our revenue come from Facebook. I don't really like to build unsustainable businesses. And what I mean by that is like, I don't really like significant dependency. I don't like platform dependency as a whole. Um, the more diversified you are, the more you can sort of, you know, have a fundamentally sound business. Uh, otherwise, if 80% of your revenue comes from one channel, but what happens during a, a swing quarter? Like, for example, what happens in election season when costs rise substantially for two months on Facebook? You just went from plus 300K a month of, of EBITDA margin to now minus 300, right? So that you can't let a platform have that much control over your business. So for us, we started to diversify pretty heavily into affiliate, into uh, Google, into a couple of other channels. Um, so like affiliate today is like close to 40% of our revenue. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, at, at our scale, that's over 10 million bucks this year from affiliate that we're expecting. Um, and so, yeah. So, so knowing those macro changes, um, rather than me asking you, like, what are the companies that you would start in today's environment? Like, what are the companies you would avoid starting in like today's environment? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and you know, I would say, so there's, there's two things. One is I would avoid companies that don't have the potential to scale omni-channel. It sounds very cliche today, but the reality is just, look, at the end of the day, uh, there's two reasons why you don't want to build a brand that can't be omni-channel. And just to, to clarify, what I mean by that is omni-channel meaning you can be at scale at brick and mortar retail, your own D2C and Amazon or other third-party marketplaces. Uh, if you can be omni-channel across the three of those, you've got a much, much better business for a number of reasons that aren't as discussed, which is like, number one is, look, that's where you find scale, right? Retail is where you find true scale and build a, a 50, 100, 200 million revenue business. You can do that on D2C, but it's very tough across a number of categories. And to be honest, the economics are not as sustainable. So, in, so you want retail. And then number two is, look, the reality is, like I mentioned, the more dependent you are, the the more fundamentally sort of uh, unsound your business is right so if you're diversified on d2c across a number of acquisition channels and you're diversified on distribution across retail wholesale amazon and d2c you have a pretty sound business and what that means is you're also much much more compelling to an acquirer most cpg strategics the reason they actually buy brands that are already scaling in brick and mortar retail is because that's showing them data at scale that's proving that you can reach mass market America, that you can outpace the legacy players on the shelves, and that you've already proven a level of turnover at scale at the, and, uh, at the most important retailers in the country. So that's why most of the big exits you've seen, 100, 300, 500 million plus, are brands that have substantial retail distribution. That doesn't mean you know 
all brands that have exited for that amount have retail, but a very large percentage of them do. Um, and what I actually like to explain to people is kind of the the inverse incentive problem, actually, that D2C has relative to retail. So think about retail, Amazon, and D2C, and think about how each of these channels scale, right? Um, with retail, the more that you perform in retail shelves, the more efficient you are, the more you get rewarded, right? Because if your turnover and sales velocity and volume per week is high, if your units per week sold is increasing, you're going to get more doors, better shelf space, and more purchase orders from those retailers and more retailers. So you're because because you're incentivized to maximize the efficiency of your sales. Why? Because you're sharing the economics with Walmart, right? Meaning if they're buying a purchase order from you and they're putting you on their shelves and they only make money if you sell and they're putting you over other brands, their goal is for you to sell to the best of your ability, right? Because they control the distribution and their economics are aligned with yours. Amazon is the same thing, right? Um, Amazon, as you have increased sales velocity, you get rewarded with more distribution. It's the same system. Why? Because the reality is those who control the distribution have the same economic incentives as you in those two channels. In D2C, that's not the case, right? Those who control distribution at the end of the day are the, the traffic directors, which are ad networks. Ad networks do not have an incentive for you to increase efficiency as you spend more. I mean, you can argue they do, but that's not really how ad inventory works, right? Um, because the reality is as you spend more, you're saturating the audiences that are relevant to you further and further. You are bidding up against and requiring more ad inventory, which is increasingly scarce and increasingly decreasing on ad networks like Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and so the reality is you're competing against a number of bidders in this auction system of ads that don't have the same economic incentives as you either. You're competing not just against, you know, it's not the, the brand on the shelf next to you. Your ads are competing technically with Mercedes-Benz's ads, right? And they don't have the same economic structure. They're, they're also spending for brand awareness. You're spending for purchases, but you guys are competing for a similar inventory on the same network, on the same feed. So understanding those economic incentives is very important because what that means is D2C gets harder as you scale theoretically, right? At least to acquire brand new customers because D2C is meant to be a game of acquiring specifically the customers that are relevant for you. Um, and, and as a result, as you spend more, things get tougher, you saturate, your ad costs increase. Retail on Amazon, the better you do, the more you get rewarded with even heavier profits. And so at the end of the day, um, I would avoid brands that don't have the potential to be in those. And I guess to elaborate on what that means, uh, usually I can look at a brand and a product and understand whether or not Walmart, Target, CVS, any of those guys will pick it up. A lot of times it's it's price point, it's category, it's audience. Like, look, you, you can go to Walmart and go on, you know, a, a shelf of any category you want to look at, and you can look at their maximum price point. Walmart's not putting a $5 drink in their stores. They're not putting $300 comforters in their stores. The maximum, I think the, the highest cost bed sheet at Walmart is like $70 to the MSRP, right? The, the most expensive drink you'll probably find is $3. Target is not too far off from those figures. Um, so there's a lot of brands that just don't lend themselves well to being uh, retail-driven brands, or they don't have enough differentiation to be in retail shelves. So is Miracle built for with this in mind, like for these retailers or not necessarily, like I guess another yeah. way of asking, like would you consider Miracle for the higher end upper market or is it for like, you know, 
you know, general America? I would say, to be honest, it's not really for general America. It's definitely a bit more of the premium end of the market. So we're not a very retail dominant business. And I, I know I sound like a hypocrite saying, look, I wouldn't build a business that doesn't have omnichannel potential. But our benefit was we built distribution streams that most others don't have at a level of scale. And we founded the brand in a time where there still was a window of opportunity to build your brand and audience base uh, in a time that that was predominantly D2C without retail required to be profitable. Um, and, you know, and I think for us, look, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and say we're, we're a great business because of the fact that we don't have retail or that we don't need it. I mean, retail would definitely help us get a, unlock a substantial level of scale and profits that we, you know, have a much tougher time doing on D2C. We are a profitable business. We are growing rapidly. Um, but we have had to work tirelessly and put in a lot of effort to build a really, really strong foundation on our marketing and continue to experiment a ton every week so that we can get D2C to continue being profitable. It's really difficult, right? And the margin is not the same as retail. We're not a 20, 25% margin business. You can get those margins in retail. Um, and, and so for us, yeah, if, if we were designed for retail, we definitely would have an easier job scaling at least profitably. Um, but yeah, what I find super interesting, <laughs> Blaine, jump in at any point. <laughs> he's no, just, go for it. Uh, he's just a, a passing in the audience. Um, so, you know, I think what I find interesting is that, especially since you mentioned like ad networks, I have a friend, for example, has a $50 million company in the high end food space. And I think they're having trouble exiting. And it's what you mentioned with the strategics, like, you know, you get to era one, you get into whole foods, but strategics are probably like, there's not this audience isn't anywhere else in retail. So there's yeah. not a whole lot for, for us to do. And then these ad networks, um, you know, they have the audience they have, but probably affiliates is like the best way to continue tapping yeah. into into sort of new and new and new newer audiences that most other brands don't have direct access to. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like the mode around it. I'm curious, you know, in these strategics, like they don't have those playbooks, probably. I'm not sure if that's the case, but how do you guys view affiliates do you have do you guys have a playbook is it an agency like it because you're essentially building your own ad network by building an affiliate system yeah so to to also address the point you just mentioned on like the air one example right yeah the, the strategics want to see you in mass market american retail if they're going to buy you because a cpg strategic is buying you at 100 million today because they think you can do a billion in revenue under their system because how is their system built off the back of retail distribution and manufacturing, right? So in their minds, they're saying you've proven product market fit, which for us in the venture world and in the early stage startup world, that can mean a few million or 10 million plus in revenue for a CPG business. That doesn't mean anything to them. To them, that's more, hey, you've got 50 million, 100 million of revenue uh, across brick and mortar retail because they need to feel like they can plug in their manufacturing at scale and their retail distribution uh, to, to 10X that business. Um, that's the why those, economics don't work, they're not going to do it. Exactly. And and that's where I, I talk about you know the, the omni-channel portion. The reason I say don't build a brand that doesn't have omni-channel potential, uh, that sounds like I'm saying, oh, don't invest in a brand that's not on each channel but no I, I literally mean like when you're founding a brand there are like things you can do at the founding level to understand if a brand has potential to be in brick and mortar retail like don't launch a 50 dollars wellness product right uh, a vitamin that's never going to be in retail shops right sure you might be able to get erewhon maybe a, a couple of other sort of uh businesses but if you want to build 
30 million in annual brick and mortar retail and wholesale revenue. Like Costco, Walmart, Target, CVS, those guys are not taking a $50 wellness product. They're not taking a $6 beverage. They're not taking, you know, a, a $200 premium pet product. Like none of those things can really break into that level of retail. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, just to, just to kind of reiterate that piece. And then, and then the affiliate uh, portion. So the way that we've done it is with affiliates, here's what matters. What matters, and I don't mean like influencer affiliates. These are like, you know, uh, think of like email lists, listicles, publishers, uh, uh, performance marketers that kind of put their own dime. The way all they care about is earnings per click. Okay. And the earnings per click is calculated based on uh, the conversion rate of your offer slash lender and the CPA or acquisition cost that you're going to give them as compensation for every sale that they drive. And those two markers indicate earnings per click. So for every click that I send you, a certain percentage will convert and I get this much payout. So this is my earnings per click. It's all they care about is maximum earnings per click because then all they need to do is figure out how to drive quality traffic at a cheaper cost per click than the earnings per click they earn with you. So what we do really well at our team is we're very, very good at building and optimizing these offers and funnels. Our landing pages and our funnels that we've developed are unbiased, but I feel that they're best in class. And the reason I say that is, I mean, we've like I've like myself and my partners have advised and helped other brands kind of build similar systems and they have been a success for a lot of folks. And, you know, we've we've always typically been pretty ahead of the curve on experimentation on our funnels. So we go from, you know, we have pre-sale pages, which are advertorials. We have long form landing pages that convert really well. And then we have a custom checkout system that actually gives you one one click post-purchase upsells in a very custom formatted way that's very different from most one-click upsells. And all of those pieces allow us to generate more earnings per click and offer a higher CPA um, for our affiliates. So what we do is we, we focus relentlessly internally on continuing to optimize our offer. And that way, our own internal media buying teams and traffic teams and the external affiliate partners all succeed and perform really well. So the more that we can continue to optimize that, continue to find more upsells, more bundles that work, the more we can pay affiliates more commissions than others in the category or other competitors in general, and that gives us more traffic. Affiliates have a finite amount of traffic and amount of dollars they're willing to spend to the offers they work with. So the better you perform relative to others, the more traffic you're going to receive, right? So as an example, we're on a bunch of listicles that are very, very high performing at large levels of scale. These are offers where these affiliates will build listicles of gift guides of different products and they have commissions for each product that tracks affiliate links into what sales they drive and they get paid a commission. Then these affiliates drive a ton of paid traffic onto these listicles. Now, how do they decide who's number one, number two, number three on a listicle instead of number 42 is who's got the highest earnings per click. So the more we continue to optimize, the more we perform really well in these listicles and get fed hundreds of orders a day then, right? Um, so that's, that's how we've sort of built a lot of our affiliate system and affiliate has been awesome for us. I mean, we've done, you know, eight figures of revenue on affiliate. Like last year we had 8 million of revenue from affiliate out of 20 million or so of 21 million of revenue as a brand. This year we'll have about 10 million of affiliate revenue out of, you know, close to 28 million in, in, in revenue as a brand. Um, so yeah, it's, it's affiliate can be a very powerful distribution network and our, acquisition costs that we pay, you know, the affiliates, our CPA is like 20% cheaper than costs on Facebook. Blaine, I know 
you know, seated isn't necessarily a fully affiliate, but like, it sounds like this is along your, your playing field. Yeah. I mean, I, one question that I'd have Harris in terms of like the affiliate stuff is, is basically what you're saying is like, you're, you guys are really focused on generating a lot of really like customized landing pages and conversion. That's like tailor-made to the different affiliate campaigns that you're running or, um, or, or how are you doing it? No, no, I, uh, not, not custom for the affiliates. Instead, we're always trying to find the highest performing funnels that we can create, whether like landing pages, advertorials, funnels, whatever, like all of that sort of in one, because we provide the different elements of the flow to the affiliates. And the affiliates will all drive their traffic to that core funnel that's winning, right? So for us, like we're always trying to experiment to squeeze an extra couple bucks out of each funnel that we can, right? So if we have an offer, if we have a landing page built for our brand, and it's centered around you know a certain number of upsells or bundles or whatever it might be our goal is to continue to price test to test the design to test the copy to test the flow of our upsells as an example to increase our average order value increase the gross margin or sorry increase the average order profit on every order so that we can continue paying out high cpas to the affiliates so we don't we don't build custom uh, funnels for each affiliate instead we build our central funnels and feed the highest performing ones to the affiliates. So as an example, like we have a ton of different advertorials that are designed for specific value props that we have, whether it's the temperature regulation, whether it's overall like general overview of the different value props we have, different seasonality ties into different value props. And we're gonna, we always sort of experiment with those and those then lead into the core landing page that we're always improving and optimizing. And then we're always kind of making tweaks and price tests across those to, to improve our conversion rates. Um, so yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. And the the other thing that I'm kind of excited to talk about is it seems like you you guys are really leaning in, like you were saying, in terms of the budget and how much you're investing and spending on affiliate. It seems like that you guys are probably a little bit more ahead of the curve than a lot of the other brands we've spoken with that aren't, you know, maybe as versed in affiliate, the power of it and being able to support that much of revenue. So, um, you know, one thing I'd just like to talk about is could what's kind of the, for a brand who's maybe starting out a little bit earlier stage who has you know maybe they've grown up spent they've they've created a product they've started um you know they've grown through ads they have their own channel maybe they're spinning up an amazon store now they're trying to get into affiliates like what are what are the first steps what networks should they hit and how should they think about like building out their own affiliate program yeah for sure i would say the very first step and this is important not just for your affiliate operation but everything you do as a brand is is nail your offer right and your offer is effectively like think of your core lander um, that you're driving most of your traffic to, but but also the sort of combination of products that you're selling with that. I know that sounds really vague, but like your offer is not just this random landing page or this theme for holiday season. It's more like, all right, we've got, you know, let's say uh, our core bedsheet product plus two free towels at this price point with this entire sort of landing page funnel selling the entire sort of value props and 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 usps of the brand and product and that funnel that offer um mixed with sort of the price point and what cpa we can give is the offer as a whole so i don't constitute the offer as just the landing page the offer is hey we've got this core funnel with these upsells in place with this aov that we have and this cpa that we can pay to the affiliates and this is our offer so when an affiliate network asks us hey what's your offer we say hey look this is the lander these this is our conversion rate this is our aov this is the CPA we can give you, and this is how much scale we're getting off of this offer right now. And for each of your core hero products, you have a different offer. Your bed sheets are different from your towel offer and your pillowcase offer. The upsells, the bundles, the, the combination of products with it, that's your core offer. 
So I would say um, you have to nail down an offer that works because an offer that works and converts benefits all elements of, of traffic that you're driving. It benefits your organic traffic. It benefits your paid traffic. It benefits affiliates because then they can send traffic to you because they know you have a high performing offer. So I would say first and foremost, uh, you know, nail that. And that, you know, it sort of consists of like your pre-sale pages, which are your advertorials, your landing page, your upsells, like get everything in place so that you can go to affiliates and say, hey, look, we're driving, you know, 500 orders a day or 100 orders a day on this offer. This is our flow. These are our ad creatives. This is our advertorial pre-sale page. This is our landing page. These are our upsells. This is how much we're driving. This is our conversion rate. This is our AOV. That is how they're going to see it internally and say, should we drive traffic to this? Um, and, and then from there in terms of the networks to go to. So, you know, a lot of people go to like the classic networks, like CJ, share, so all of that. Look, those guys are not like those networks. You're not going to get more than like 25 grand a month, 40 grand a month off at, at the high end of the scale. If you remove coupon sites, you're getting 12 grand a month off of those sites. Right. Um, those are not really like valuable affiliate networks, in my opinion. Those are just run of the mill, you know, classic coupon sites, random publishers and blogs, um, to form real affiliate relationships. You need to go to sort of CPA based affiliate networks. Uh, DFO is one of them. Uh, giddy up is another one. Uh, A4D. These are all sort of various affiliate networks, um, that we've had either relationships with experiments with, or continue to work with, um, if you're a good offer, you, like uh, an affiliate network may want exclusivity and then they feed it to 30, 40, 50 affiliates in their exclusive network uh, or in their network as a whole. Uh, and then they, they drive traffic to you. And then the other way to drive affiliate traffic is to partner with, this is a little bit more difficult, but partner with traditional publishers um, like the Hearsts and BuzzFeeds and Bustles of the world who can sort of do one-off articles that drive scale for you. It's a bit more difficult to do that because they mostly like driving traffic to Amazon and skim links and other sort of systems that already have all their tracking and offers within them. Um, but you can definitely do it. Uh, I mean, we've done various sort of affiliate partnerships with publishers. Um, but yeah. What I love about this is that affiliates are like they're they're they want it just as bad as you do to make it work exactly. you know they're they're exactly. looking for the next best product to promote whereas influencers is tougher because the influencer is getting a grand up front they're like fuck it good luck exactly. if my audience buys it or not but the affiliate yep. you know they it's like levels to it where only the best like get the best products they keep it within that circle by the time exactly. that's on cj it's like every affiliate already has like poured out the best unit well, economics it's it's also kind of like Horace, what you were talking about before in terms of um aligning incentives with retailers and drawing scale it's almost like a similar thing online right yeah exactly like remember um that, that's a great that's a great point because i'll, I'll dive into how that works at the, like the listicle level that ties into similar incentive systems so like remote like like what you just mentioned um you know, look, influencers will get paid for, for brand reach um, and and content from various brands that are willing to pay them 20 grand up front, regardless of performance. If 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 Gucci is paying that influencer 30 grand or Pepsi is paying that influencer 40 grand, they're getting paid. So they will take your money if you have if, if you're offering them money, but they don't necessarily need to figure out how to make their audience continue to drive real influence and conversions because they work with brands spending on brand reach. That's the same exact problem you're facing on ad networks, right? Yes, Facebook is very good at driving quality leads for for high converting users. But at the end of the day, right, 
you're competing in an auction network of ad inventory at prices relative to brands that have different incentives than you. They have, there's other brands that are willing to spend hundreds of dollars of CPA. There's other brands that are, are willing to spend just on brand and reach, just like what the influencers get paid for. Retail and Amazon, that's not the case. They only get, they only make money if you sell through. It's directly tied to conversions, right? Um, so that's why those, those sort of incentives are, are, are so aligned on affiliate because affiliate, they only make money for every sale. That's a, that's the name of the game. It's, it's a pay to play. It's, it's, or it's sort of a, a, you only get paid for, you know, whatever you bring to the table. You drove 20 conversions. Here's your dollar amount, right? Um, and, and yeah. And so for example, the listicles, right? That's a great example of how the incentives are very similar to retail and Amazon. You're incentivized to drive the most efficient click-throughs and conversion rates because at the end of the day, that means they make more money on the listicle and they'll move you up, which is kind of like the retail shelf. They're just moving you up the listicle. And those listicles are no joke. Those listicles would do like 100,000, 200,000 a day of revenue, probably half a million a day of revenue in Q4. Right. And if you're a top five brand on there, you might get 40 grand for that a day. Right. So those are, those are pretty substantial offers. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in, uh, talking about some of the top listicles generating that amount of revenue. But um, yeah, man, there's, there's a lot of different affiliate partnerships like that out there. So when you put together the offers, are you, because obviously, well, those affiliates, you know, they're, they're, it, the listicles is like not only the alignment with the audience, the quality of the product. Um, compared to what else is in the market and then obviously the margins and you know the, the payout for the traffic etc when you create these offers and, and i have no clue about this is this based on aov or ltv that that like AOV. Do you lose aov okay so you're AOV, not losing yeah. money well, on first purchase or you uh, might be actually, breaking even I, I should clarify yeah for us it's aov because we're a high price product and we have a very strong performing offer so we're highly profitable on every affiliate order that comes in. But I have other brands I advise whose offers are meant to be uh, unprofitable first purchase, but it's because their LTV is substantial, right? If, if they've got a $40 AOV, but a $350 LTV, they price their CPA based on the LTV because look, at the end of the day, the affiliates are are not going to, to drive traffic to you for a $15, $20 CPA. They're going to drive traffic to you for a $40 CPA. And if you're a $40 AOV, you're not making money on that first purchase because obviously cost of goods, shipping, everything. Um, but it's because the economics work for you because people will buy for eight months, for example, if you're a subscription product. So yeah, no, I mean, for us, we do it off AOV calculations, but I have other brands I've advised or have been involved with where, yeah, the it has to be baked in based on the LTV calculations. Um, and that doesn't mean they're paying it out over time. It just means you have to understand when your numbers hit profitability on affiliate. Um, so yeah. What are some things that can't go wrong that you shouldn't fuck up if you like jump the gun? Like let's say somebody listening to this just goes in like, is can you do something wrong to the point that like you might be banned from one of these networks you might be never let in you might never make it to the top of the list um, um you know you earn about reputation yeah. around these people i mean look the the first thing is it's not easy to be on these networks this isn't cj share sale like these networks are driving substantial scale for a finite number of brands and it's not thousands of brands right um so first, like actually getting in with these networks and getting them to actually drive traffic is not very easy. But in terms of screwing up, look, you, you don't have a lot of chances to make a first impression on affiliates. I mean, you don't have a lot of chances to make a good impression on affiliates. 
Um, and what I mean by that is, look, if the affiliate puts their dollars or their traffic towards you and it doesn't convert, doesn't perform, um, you know, you're just, that's it. They tested the offer. It doesn't mean they're not willing to test again. It's just highly unlikely. These affiliates have so many offers to look at, different offers that are already performing and scaling. Um, and so if it's already worked one, or it's already been tested and it, it, your offer is not performing or not scaling, it's just really hard to get the affiliates to actually give a shit and try again. So you you got to make sure that you come to these networks um, in general with a high-performing offer that's already cracked. You know your numbers in and out. The performance is strong. Your conversion rate is great. Your AOV is great. And you've got everything dialed in and you're already sort of testing at scale and proving that this is working. Um, because it's there's only a handful of networks that can really drive real scale and you don't want to screw up with them. Got it. So this is really the affiliates at this level. It's really about throwing gas on the fire, right? You've already done all your own yeah, testing. You've tested correct. it out. You know the offer is working and this is where you're going yeah. for for scale. So I guess that was exactly. leading me into the, the next question about that is like once you know that stuff is working, right? Like how do you put together a compelling pitch for these affiliates, like, uh, you know, like you were mentioning, you're like, I have relationships with these guys, I already know them. So I'm able to like, get in and get our offers once we know they're working. But imagine you're a brand that hasn't done this before. Like, how do you get in with these different affiliate partners? And how do you get seen? Like you said, there's so many people co competing for that uh, limited shelf space. Definitely. I mean, look, um, the reality is like, money talks and what i mean by that is like you don't you don't have to pay these affiliate networks just to get in but what i mean is like if your offer is converting and it's a mass market product or, or a or product with a large audience that they think they can scale um that are going to be willing to take a look if you can get a conversation with one of them or get an introduction like that, that's and that's why i say money talks in that if they think there's millions of dollars out there with your offer they're going to be willing to explore, but you can't go to an affiliate network and just say, Hey, I've got this awesome brand. I've spent 300 grand developing it. Look at this beautiful design. They don't care. It's about what converts the best. That's the only thing that matters and what converts the best and what CPA you can offer to get their affiliates excited within their network. So that's really all that matters, right? Like, and in terms of getting an intro to one of the, I mean, you can get an intro, you can reach out, maybe they're not going to respond. Right. I mean, for us, like we have, Good relationships with like the founders of a lot of these affiliate networks and that's because we're a fairly decently sized brand and and you know we have a lot of friends in the space um so i recognize that we definitely haven't uh we didn't have a very uh, typical it's not like we we like had to find their contact info it was definitely easier for us to say you know through our mutual friends hey look we've got this offer can we test it on this network and they were willing to explore a conversation and now we have a good relationship with them um but my point is like if you don't um find a way to get in touch with one of the folks on the team, which isn't too difficult, um, but just have a high performing offer. That's all they care about, right? You don't need to, you know, have a beautiful brand or a ton of it. They don't care how much you've raised, what your packaging is like, nothing. It's literally just, do you have a high performing offer and what CPA can you give us? And cool. That's, that's great. Let's do that. That's it. And be able to supply at scale. Yeah, that too. Also. Yeah. If you have the, the production capacity, uh, and that's where kind of mentioning you have investors or you have a short lead time, like things like that can help them get excited and say, okay, they've got the capacity to pump out thousands of orders a week. Let's do it. Um, so, yeah. Paris, as we kind of wrap up here, um, I know one thing that we didn't quite get to touch on yet that is another thing you do is like you invest and advise in a lot of um, companies in the space. So, um, you know, 
what kind of companies have you invested in? What gets you really excited? Where are your kind of, as you put your investor hat on, like what, what gets you excited in this space? Yeah, for sure. Um, so for me, um, you know, I like to invest in, so two things. Number one is, sorry, there's just a printer right next to me going off. Um, so for me, uh, what gets me excited from an investment perspective is number one, uh, brands that have substantial omni-channel potential. And I can usually vet that out pretty easily um, because depending on the category, the innovation of the product and the price point of sort of the product uh, being offered in the market, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you don't, a $500 product in a luxury space is not going to get it to retail. Um, so number one is omni-channel potential. Uh, number two is a lot of the categories that I do tend to look at are sort of food and beverage, health and wellness. Reason being, that's just where I see a lot of interesting innovation and mass market potential um, in terms of, of like retail distribution and things like that. And also those are categories with really interesting M&A prospects, right? Like strategics are willing to pay premium multiples in those markets. And if you're investing and you're looking for a venture scale outcome, that's where you're going to get it. And the third piece is team. Does the team have substantial expertise or understanding of, of marketing and distribution? Or if, if not, are they incredible learners who are surrounding themselves with the best of the best in that, right? So as an example, one company um, that I'm an investor in that I love is Emmy. Emmy is a vegan keto ramen. Um, Kevin Lee is, is a good friend of mine. He's one of the two founders of the business. Um, and I love their product because... There's real innovation in a category that needs it, which is ramen. Um, they've brought sort of better for you into the ramen category. Uh, and that immediately in my mind, there's a few things that I think of. Number one, um, substantial retail distribution prospects because ramen is a very retail dominated category. Number two is, so I, so I look at that and say, that checks my box. Number two is uh, substantial M&A prospects if they can get to scale. Because look, if you've got the better for you driver of that category, if you're the category leader there, in an old school category filled with billion dollar strategics, you're going to get M&A interest if you get scale in retail and D2C. Um, so those two sort of were there. Number three, it was a very overlooked category. I love sort of better for you and food and beverage innovation into categories that people haven't yet paid a lot of attention into. Cause you know, a lot of people paid attention to the first wave of, of like food and beverage CPG. It's like, it's like cereal and bars and things like that. Now people are going into sort of the next wave, which is like the ramens and the pretzel snacks of the world, right? Um, and the third is the team, like, uh, the two Kevins have filled their cap table with the best of the best operators in CPG. Uh, and, uh, the reason I mentioned that is the two, the two Kevins are very good at, um, understanding who and when to reach out to different investors to ask for help on very specific tactical execution related items. And that's why they've done so well. They're seeing substantial growth, um, and, and are, are kicking ass. Um, so that's an example of, of, of one brand that I'm, I'm excited about. And so, yeah, for me, it's like, does this check the box and can this hit big box retail at scale? Can it, can a product be a Costco, Walmart, Target, CVS, 7-Eleven type of play? Number two, is it in a category filled with large strategics who have, you know, the interest to, to buy out assets or have the uh, pre-existing sort of examples and comps of assets they've bought that have innovated in categories that they're in? Um, and then number three is, is how strong is the team on that front, right? And the team is the number one most important thing to me. But when we're talking like product specific, I think of those two things. Um, and that relates to a lot of 
you know, like a lot of how I think about if a brand can get into retail um, is also just through personal experience, having pitched to like most big box retailers, having been involved in like they invested in brands that have been in big box retail. Um, so a lot of it is like specific markers of like things I'm aware of. So it's hard to kind of like uh, specifically quantify those, uh, you know, in like a more brief answer. But yeah, those are those are kind of the main things. And then, oh, the last piece, how smart the founders are at um, the capitalization. I think one of the biggest challenges we face in this space is everybody raises too much money. Um, and I don't mean that in a traditional tech way of like, oh, you've burned a hundred million dollars. I just mean that more from like, look, a lot of really, really great brands can be amazing 50 to a hundred million dollar exits. Um, but they've raised capital to the point where only a $250 million exit is a success. Um, and you've kind of shot yourself in the foot because look, D to C and CPG is not a category with a lot of billion dollar outcomes. It's also not a category with a lot of $500 million outcomes. It's a lot of $100 million outcomes. And if you've raised a $25 million Series B, you're going to have a really tough time getting your board to approve that $75 million acquisition offer. So, you know, I fundamentally believe that a lot of brands should be capitalized with, you know, up to $5 million. Uh, throughout scale or, or ideally even all the way up to scale less than 10 million total unless you're raising like growth equity later stage so the problem with a lot of brands is i know a lot of brands that have gotten to 20 or 30 million of revenue they can be great 75 80 million dollar exits in the next year but they decided to go and raise a 30 million dollar series b and i don't see a world where that brand becomes a 400 million dollar exit now that's not to say that all brands won't i mean if you're crushing retail your brand is scaling um, and there's a clear line of sight to 100 million of revenue, then go for it. But if you're pure D to C, and you raise 30 million bucks, you're going to be in, in in a rough situation. So I like to just talk to the founders to get a sense of how they look at uh, profitability, building their teams lean, and how much capital they intend to raise. If they tell me they just feel like they need to raise one or two rounds at most, and feel that they can build the business with strong fundamentals, strong retention, and retail distribution, then it usually means that like they know how this space works from an M&A perspective and an investment perspective. Um, so, yeah. Sweet. Well, that's really, that's really helpful in terms of, um, you know, a, a nice lens to evaluate not only businesses as a founder, but as an investor and everything. Um, so wanted to thank you for coming on with us uh, today. This episode has been really great. Love covering everything from how to evaluate a business, how to start a business, how you should be thinking about building in the right way, scaling up traffic, affiliates, and everything. So for our listeners who are tuning in, where can they connect with you? Where can they find more about you, Miracle, Nameless, and all the other cool projects you're involved with? Yeah, uh, I would say LinkedIn is probably best or email me, uh, Harris, H-A-R-I-S, at nameless-ventures.com. Uh, to be honest, I have, uh, the reason I say LinkedIn is I don't have any social media. I, I deleted all of my social media about eight months ago. Um, so I am nowhere to be found other than LinkedIn or email. So that's probably the best place to reach me. Sweet. Well, thanks for coming on with us today. Awesome. Appreciate you guys having me. Yeah.